Hello and welcome to Subject to Change with me, Russell Hogg. My guest today is Roger Crowley. Roger's been on the show before, of course, when he talked about the Knights of St. John, the Siege of Malta and the Battle of Lepanto. And this time we're going to be talking about how the Portuguese found their way around the Horn of Africa and into the Indian Ocean and what happened next. Anyway, welcome back, Roger, to the podcast. Thank you very much, Russell. It's a delight to be back here. So we're going to be talking about the period when Europeans, and in particular the Portuguese, first found their way around Africa and into the Indian Ocean back around, I think, in the year, well, around the year 1500. I wasn't quite sure where to start the story, so I thought maybe we could start in the middle, which I appreciate is a bit counterintuitive. But the reason I thought that would be a good place to start was I wanted to emphasize a particular event which I thought symbolized just how violent and at times horribly cruel this whole business was. And so maybe it's a bit disorientating for the listeners, but could we start and talk about what happened to the Miri? The Miri is a cause celebre in Indian history. It's a ship returning from pilgrimage to Mecca and bringing uh, men, women and children, about 240 of them, on quite a large ship, back to the west coast of India, Muslims, Muslim traders who operate from the city of Calicut on the west coast of India. And they have the bad luck to be intercepted by Vasco da Gama on what is the third Portuguese mission into the Indian Ocean. Local piracy was a feature of this coastline, and it was not uncommon for ships to have to pay a toll. That was a convention. So the Miri hoves to, and the captain of the Miri offers to pay Vasco da Gama a sum of money or, or in goods. And Vasco da Gama is not having it. Uh, they up, keep upping the offers. We'll, we'll fill all your ships with spices when we get to Calico, and, and I will stand security against that. Vasco da Gama is, is, is not playing the game. He is determined to just destroy a Muslim ship. So what follows is a horrible saga of uh, cruelty and almost incomprehensible uh, hatred, I think, on the part of this man. Vasco da Gama is almost psychopathic, I think, at this point. They strip the Miri of its masts and its rudder, and they start to bombard it. And you get this horrible picture of women holding their children up, pleading for mercy across the water. One of the extraordinary things about this is that we actually have a, a sideways look at the Portuguese from a Portuguese man himself. The, um, the clerk on the ship records what he sees, and he's horrified. Over the next nine days, Vasco tracks this ship across the ocean. They make an attempt to burn everybody alive in it and fail. They keep bombarding it, and eventually, after nine days of drifting helplessly across the Indian Ocean under a hot sun, they manage to set fire to it and burn all the survivors to death. And this evoked horror, certainly, in the clerk who's writing about it. But actually, there's an extra side to it. He can't understand the cruelty of Vasco's behaviour, but he can't understand uh, the stupidity of it, because here is a ship full of good stuff, which every Portuguese has come to India to, to get. And he really sees this behaviour as off the scale on both counts. But this is going to be remembered by uh, Indian nationalist historians and become a kind of symbol in the uh, end of the colonial, post-colonial days of, of Indian history of the cruelty uh, of the colonial people coming 
into their world. And as I understand it, the Miri is just a passenger ship, right? It's not carrying soldiers or guns or stuff like that. It did actually have some guns. They Obviously, there was some need to protect yourself, but they were really ineffectual compared to the superiority of the weapons which the Portuguese brought into the Indian Ocean. Like the conquistadors in South America, they had firearm superiority, very good bronze cannons, which could fire reasonably fast. And this is a technology they acquired mainly from the Low Countries and from Germany. And very often they had German gunners on board. So they were effectively operating in a sea where none of the other ships in the Indian Ocean really had any firepower. And therefore, it gave them an asymmetrical advantage against even very large fleets. But despite that, the Miri puts up a bit of a fight, doesn't it? The Miri did put up a fight. Though after about five days, they attempt to board, uh, the Portuguese attempt to board the Miri, and they're repulsed with a you know, with a, a desperate fight by the Muslim passengers uh, on board and and really repel the Portuguese and, and threw them back off the ship and killed a few people. But in the end, it's hopeless. And they go, they go down to the last man. I think Vasco da Gama rescued a few children for his own purposes, which he was going to use as witnesses and evidence of various things that he wanted to prove against the Muslim population. So that sort of gives us an idea of, of what the Portuguese could be capable of. Let's now go back a bit more to the start. Can you just say a bit about how the Portuguese began to explore down Africa? What was the understanding of Europeans of Africa and the Indian Ocean at that time? Nobody was certain that Africa didn't uh, wrap itself all the way around the world and that the Indian Ocean was a closed sea although I think the Portuguese had a fairly good idea about that. They had some idea about it. Their understanding of India was uh, also quite sketchy, particularly of the inhabitants uh, of the Indian Ocean and, and India itself. They start to work their way down the coast of Africa, stage by stage, uh, during the years of the 15th century, from about 1420 onwards. And initially, these are slaving expeditions, grabbing people off the coast, and they're looking for sources of gold. They know that somewhere on the other side of the Sahara, the very rich gold fields of Mali. And so they're looking for things to grab, slaves to steal, and hopefully spices to obtain. As the century goes on, these expeditions become more and more structured. The king sends out fleets at regular intervals uh, on missions to map the uh, coastline and they get to the point where they send out each expedition goes out with a, with a carved cross with the arms of the King of Portugal on it. And when they get to the last point south that they can manage before turning round, they leave this cross on a headland. And this becomes the start and the point for the next expedition to move beyond. So it has a kind of deep structure to it. In the process, they learn a lot about how to how to extract information. They they become very good at at, at feedback from what they learn. Everything that they learn, all the maps that they, that they produce go back into uh, a central India house that they come to call it in Lisbon. And this information is fed into the next expedition. They work out how to speak to people. They grab some people off the coast. They bring them back to Portugal. They teach them Portuguese. And then they can act as interpreters for the next wave. So they get very, very good at information gathering. And this is going to be an really impressive, this feedback loop. And the usage to which they put it is going to be 
and an an incredibly valuable feature where they enter the huge arena of the Indian Ocean. Now, how come the Portuguese? Because Portugal at this time does not it's not a big country as I understand it. It's not a rich country. How come they in this exploration of Africa? No, Portugal is probably the poorest country in Europe. It has a population of about a million people, has few natural resources, is locked out of the Mediterranean, is too poor to print to uh, mint its own gold coins. But the one thing they do have is a very long Atlantic coast. And the one thing that the Portuguese are better at than anybody else in Europe is uh, learning to sail the Atlantic. And so they get precocious navigational skills and key to exploration is to work out how the Atlantic winds work. It takes them quite a long time to do this, but they realize that you can sail down the coast of Africa, but coming back up the coast is very hard work against the winds. So counterintuitively, they have to do what they uh, came to call the sea turn, where they swing out into the Atlantic, pick up a westerly wind, and go back home again. And this is the process by which, in the end, they are going to crack the code of the Atlantic winds, which are going to carry them round the uh, the Cape of Good Hope into the Indian Ocean. Before we get to that, can we just understand a bit more about why the Portuguese are so good at it? Um, I mean, where did they get this, the boat building skills? Is this just because they have an Atlantic coast? How did they become such good navigators? Where did they get this metalworking technique? seems like it's all coming together for them in a way that perhaps it's not doing for other nations. This is a precocious national identity. They fought wars in the 14th century against Castile, Spain, and repulsed the Castilians. This is, so they established their national frontiers very early on. They had a new dynasty called the House of Aviz under a man called John the Barca, John I. They get quite a lot of uh, sort of intellectual firepower actually from England because uh, John marries uh, Philippa of Lancaster, uh, daughter of John of Gaunt, a grand uh, daughter of Edward III. And her sons, of which Henry, the so-called navigator, was one, are bred to high expectations of success. They've got to live up to something. You know, they've got a cousin, Henry V, who's fighting Agincourt. So these people are, are set up by their mother, by their bloodstream, and by um, the, the the drive of a very focused dynasty to achieve something. A lot of the, the sailing skills I think I've explained and the map-making skills they had, but there's also a lot of um, intellectual um, capital acquired from outside of Portugal. After the Jews are expelled from Spain in 1492, they get uh, Jewish cartographers and astronomers, a man called José Vizinho. And they also... Uh, become a magnet for anybody who wants to make it in Europe for a while. This becomes a Silicon Valley of, of the cutting edge of, of discovery. So you get finance from uh, Italy and from Germany. The, the House of Fugger provides finance for these expeditions. You get cannon founders and map makers from Germany. And you get people coming from all over Europe to see and uh, and to try and participate in the Portuguese frontier, which is opening up to the rest of the world. You mentioned something about them leaving posts behind on the African coast, and I'm quite interested in that, because I think I read in your book that we still have some of these posts, is that right? Some of these pillars uh, were still in place, so uh, certainly on the coast of Namibia, 
uh, at the end of the 19th century. They are now, um, some of them are in a museum in Germany, some of them are in museums in Lisbon, and they're carved with the arms of the, of the king with a date on them, uh, usually the date's a year out of, uh, out of date by the time they actually plant the pillars. And um, so these are markers. Uh, another interesting thing about the Portuguese is that they were convinced, and I think this is something goes back to Ptolemy, that there were rivers that would carry them across uh, Africa. So they were doomed to an awful lot of effort during this 60-70 year process of making their way down the coast to to launching river-based expeditions up the big rivers of Africa, Senegal, the Congo, the Niger, and so on. Um, and, of course, they all failed. In point of fact, some explorers in 1911 discovered 100 miles up the Congo the arms of the King of Portugal carved on a rock, which shows that they, they sailed all the way up the river for as far as they could, came to some rapids that they couldn't get any further, carved their arms and went back again. So they were making all sorts of efforts to and weird expeditions it was a very much trial and error process, but absolutely fascinating. And didn't they have some mad idea about the kingdom of Prester John, who seems to have been a character who, in order to still be alive, must be 300 years old? Um, but maybe it's the kingdom of his descendants they were looking for. But didn't they have this idea that there's some Central African kingdom of Prester John? They did. This is a widespread medieval belief, which starts, I think, with a, with a medieval forgery, that Somewhere beyond the Islamic world, this is a kind of bit of wish fulfillment. There is a very powerful Christian king. And you see him appearing on maps uh, produced by cartographers of Mallorca, Jewish cartographers. There's this wonderful image of Prester John sitting on a gold throne saying Rex, something or other. And um, of course, these are the uh, Christian kings of Ethiopia. And they had this kind of idea and this is one that goes back to the end of the Crusades. If you could outflank the Islamic world, you could connect with the Christians on the on the other side, and you could attack Islam from behind and destroy it. And this plays out very heavily in the Portuguese imagination, because as well as being interested in trade and getting the stuff, the gold, the spices, and so on, they were also, they also were pretty heavily into crusading, which they practiced kind of year in year out in Morocco against the. Islamic population. So these are these are. I think the Portuguese are two things. They're both modern people in terms of their sailing technology uh, and their cartography and so on, and medieval people in terms of their their kind of chivalric code among the noble class and this crusading zeal to uh, destroy Islam. And this is going to have all sorts of sorts of effects on their behaviour as they make it into the world of, of the Indian Ocean. And I suppose the extent that they're sort of struggling against uh, the North African Corsairs, that's where they learn to give absolutely no quarter, right? Because presumably they don't receive any and they don't give any. Absolutely, yes. I mean, in, in a sense, they, they enter the world beyond North Africa with sort of low advisors, really. And the crusading element and the cruelty which they inflict in the Indian Ocean, as we heard with the Miri episode, is something that was practiced and developed in North Africa. Could you tell us then how they make it round the Horn of Africa in the end? The swing out into the Atlantic, which I explained... Um, I didn't quite understand that, because you said that was to get back to Portugal, whereas now we're talking that was about to get, going out. Yes, that was to get back to Portugal. But as they got further south, they realized that there was a symmetrical swing 
that, that would take, take them out into the sea, but around to the south, and they would pick up winds again, which would take them in a southerly loop rather than a northerly loop. And nobody knows exactly how they work that out. And I think one of the fascinating things about the whole Portuguese story is that there are many gaps in it, probably because an awful lot of records got destroyed in the Great Lisbon earthquake of 1757. So we don't know exactly how, how or, or the stages by which they worked them out, uh, worked out this this sea turn to the south, which means that they have to swing out in the direction of uh, Brazil and then uh, pick up a wind which uh, w would take them round um, the Cape of Good Hope. Who is it in the end that actually gets round uh, the Cape of Good Hope? Well, it's Vasco da Gama is the man who is sent out. No, it's not. To Diaz gets there first. Oh, sorry. Okay, all right. Okay, sure. I see it. Okay, forget that. <laughs> Start again. <laughs> As you were. Yeah. Okay. No, no. <laughs> sorry, I, I, I skipped on. <laughs> The man who first gets there. Okay, start again. <laughs> no giggling. <laughs> giggling bit here. <laughs> Deep breathing. The man who eventually uh, makes his way just round the Cape of Good Hope is a man called Bartolomeo Dios in 1497, I think it is. And um, he makes a miniature swing. He battles his way against headwinds down almost to the bottom of Africa, then does a small swing and just makes it round the corner. And at that point, he's proved that there is an end to Africa. But the crew will go no further. They're frightened. They think this might be a one-way ticket. They'll never come back. One of the strange things about this, that this is the proof that the Portuguese have been seeking for decades. And yet it's hardly written about at all. The only reason why we know about Dias's expedition is a marginal note in a book belonging to Christopher Columbus, who was there at the court of King uh, John uh, when Dias uh, makes it back. So there's no celebration, no, no fanfare, but this has provided the launch pad now for a major expedition into the Indian Ocean. And just to go off on a little bit of a tangent there, I remember you said that Portugal had become sort of a centre of people who wanted to get backing for their explorations. And it seems like Columbus was one of them. Yes, uh, Columbus was certainly uh, one of them. He'd come to Portugal, um, he'd set up in Portugal and his brother. He married a Portuguese woman and he learnt his sailing from the Portuguese. And was Columbus, was he Spanish? What What was his... Well, everybody has a... If you take uh, 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 some Portuguese people aside and feed them a large number of drinks, they will say, do you know what? Columbus is really Portuguese. <laughs> he was the illegitimate son of the king of Portugal. Uh, <laughs> but I think we have to say he was Genoese. And actually, there were a lot, quite a lot of Italians. that The Portuguese had actually had a Genoese admiral in terms of their uh, sailing operations in the previous century. But um, he, he tries hard to persuade King John, who is uh, the king at that time, to fund an expedition to sail west. And John and his very experienced team of Jewish uh, cartographers turned down his his bid because they reckon that he's made the world 25% too small and that, that India, nobody knows, of course, that America's in the way, uh, that India and China and so on are much closer than they actually are. So in the end, he persuades um, the Spanish. And the rest is history. <laughs> uh, and the rest is history, yeah. And actually, and actually, am I right that the Jewish 
astronomers, they're right. It is. They were right. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, absolutely. And yeah, they'd, you know, I think people had got a good idea of the correct science of the, of, of the world in the Greek period. But there's a bit of wishful thinking going on there, I think. But, but they knew he got it wrong. But unfortunately, you know, it rather backfired on the Portuguese in the long yeah. run. So Diaz has made it round, and and then his crew say, right, we don't want to go any further, thank you very much, and, and, and back they go. And then I think I'm right in saying there's, there's quite a gap before they send out another expedition, which is, it's not just unusual that there was no fuss made about it, but you would think that, wow, now we've done it. Now's the time to press on. But I think there's a bit of a delay, isn't there, before they send the next expedition. So how does that come to happen? Or rather, how does the next expedition come to be? Well, there is a delay. Uh, John uh, II, who is King Portugal, is a very smart guy. But he's dying in the 1490s of, of uh, liver cancer, I think. And he dies in 1497. And he's succeeded by King Manuel who is, they call John uh, the perfect prince, and they call Manuel the fortunate, because he acquires all the intellectual knowledge about the route to, to India. He even acquires the, the wood to build the ships. So it is, it is he who mounts the expedition. This is where eight years after uh, Diaz, in 1497, from Lisbon, uh, three ships under Vasco da Gama, to find a way to India. And you say that they he had the wood to build the ships. So what do these ships look like? Do they look anything like Drake's Golden Hind? How big are they? I don't really have a sense of them. They're, they're about 100 tons, which is not very big. They would have had um, three masts, quite rounded ships, um, carracks, I think is what you would call them. The Portuguese call them now. I just ship, really, I suppose. And an aftercastle. And they were, yeah, they were still... They're pretty tough, you know. They the ocean-going ships, but they're not big, and you know it's pretty cramp, cramped. You know, the crew are going to sleep on deck, and I think probably none of us would want to put to sea in one of these things. But they were quite durable vessels. So Manuel takes over from John, and yeah, he yeah. and he and, now and launches yeah. another expedition. So yeah, yeah. shall we talk about yeah, that? Yeah, yeah. Um, Vasco's expedition sets out from Lisbon, and it. It carries out the, the large sea swing out into the middle of the Atlantic, down towards Brazil, but not as far as that. And they're out of sight of land for 90 days, which is three months, which is an extraordinarily long time. And because we don't know if there are any previous expeditions, we think this must have been a very frightening experience. It's also dangerous because scurvy will start to strike down a crew after 64 days. People will start to die after about 90 days. So any longer, and really this whole crew probably would have been dead, but they make it to the coast of Africa. They just actually slightly drop short of the Cape of Good Hope, and then they hop round it. And when they reach the coast, obviously they're, they're able to maintain some, obtain some food stuff from either from the native people. And, and then they make it round the corner into the Indian Ocean. They then work their way up the coast of Africa, and bearing in mind the Prester John story, they have this idea that they're going to find a sea full of Christians. <laughs> but almost all the maritime coastal trade of the Indian Ocean is in the hands of Muslims from all around the Indian Ocean, from Persian Gulf, from, from Egypt, uh, and from the, from the Saudi Peninsula and so on. 
So immediately, there's going to be a conflict between Vasco, the crusader, the man who thinks he's going to find Christians, and these Muslim merchants. And this is going to become the source of a great deal of conflict in the years ahead. So did they did they find Diaz's cross when they went round the when they went round the corner? Had Diaz left behind a cross for them to find? I don't think we've got a record of that as to whether they found a cross or not. I'm fairly sure it's not mentioned in the account that we have. So they worked their way up the coast of Africa, and you say that it's not a completely peaceful affair. So what trouble do they get themselves into as they work their way up? They found it difficult to get supplies. They were harassed, but not there's not much in the way of military action or encounters yet. They do meet some friendly people who they think are Christians. Um, and one of the many things, wonderful things about uh, the misconceptions that happen to the uh, Portuguese is they hear people shouting, men with dark skins who are merchants, shouting what they think is Christ, Christ. But they're probably shouting Krishna, Krishna. And these are probably Hindu merchants on the coast of Africa. To get across the sea, they managed to get the cooperation and the services of a Muslim pilot who, who is used to making this journey across the Indian Ocean. And it is really local knowledge which gets them across the sea to the coast of the western coast of India. As I recall, the pilot, is he keen to help them? I, I seem to recall in reading that sometimes, anyway, I can't remember if it was on this occasion, but sometimes the pilots uh, were, were far less keen than the Portuguese might have hoped, occasionally even throwing themselves overboard. Yes, I think there are cases of that. I, I, I'm not quite sure of the circumstances of this. Um, they might have just grabbed him. It was, it was not unusual to, to grab a pilot. I think Drake grabbed a Portuguese pilot when he wanted to go around the world. But this man cooperated and took them over the Indian Ocean, I think about 19 days. Actually, this is not the easy time of year to cross the ocean. They left Portugal too late. They should have left a couple of months earlier. But in August 1497, they reach the city of Calicut on the west coast of India. And whenever I hear the word Calicut, I always think, oh, that must be Calcutta. But it's, that's a completely different place, right? That's right. Yes, it is. Yeah. Um, the, I think the wonderful thing about arriving in, on the west coast of India, you've discovered a new world. And what you do, the Portuguese did, was if they wanted to send somebody ashore to find out, they sent somebody who was dispensable. <laughs> Usually they took a few convicts along for this, and if they got hit on the head, you know, it didn't matter. I think the man they sent actually was Jewish, and he gets ashore, and a man speaks to him in Castilian, or <laughs> a version of, and says, what on earth are you doing here? Um, uh, and, the, and this is almost like being, this is the voyage of discoveries, but it's almost like the voyage of being discovered, <laughs> because... This is a merchant from the north coast of Africa, from, uh, from Tangiers, and he's met uh, merchants from Spain or Portugal and obviously learned the language. And it gives you a sense of the width of the Islamic trading commonwealth, really, that could stretch all the way from 
almost from the Atlantic Ocean all the way beyond India to uh, the Spice Islands. And the sheer ignorance of the of of the Europeans arriving there. So it's kind of an enormously anticlimactic moment, really. And to rub it in, he says, you know, when he says, what are you doing here? He meant, um, he meant what are you, the Portuguese, doing here? You you're sort of miserable little country. <laughs> Why doesn't the King of Spain or the Venetians send a fleet? So nobody really rated uh, Portugal as being of any importance. But, you know, this is kind of a humbling moment, I think, for... European self-importance. And people always make fun of people when they say, oh, so-and-so place was discovered, and they say, oh, but the people living there knew all about it. But that's particularly true here, isn't it? Because there is a big trading network between the Muslim world and the Indian world, and it's a highly interconnected sea. But what it isn't is, of course, connected around to Europe, around the uh, coast of Africa. So it's sort of the Europeans are completely cut off from the Indian Ocean until this moment, right? Yes, I mean, they have to buy all, all the good things of these. They have to buy, uh, come up uh, the Red Sea, uh, shipped over land to the Nile and taken up to Alexandria, where Europeans have to buy them at massively inflated prices. That was their only access to spices and pearls and silk and stuff by the 15th century because the Mongol highway has collapsed. There's no, there's no natural silk road for them to tap into. Can you just say a little bit about the world of the Indian Ocean then, about the, you know, who are the players there? Say something maybe about the Mamluks and about who's in charge in India and, and, and how the states are organized. The Indian Ocean is really a vast trading commonwealth, a free trade commonwealth, you could say, in which there are several players and key points. The Mamluks, who are the ruling Islamic dynasty in Egypt, are really the people who sell spices which reach them from across the sea. Critical are Aden at the mouth of the uh, Red Sea, Hormuz at the mouth of the Persian Gulf, and some of the states on the what's called the Malabar coast, particularly Calicut, Goa to a certain extent, a place called Diu further north. And then from there down the next major hub of trade which connects the world of the Indian Ocean with the world of the Spice Islands and China is Malacca on the west coast of, of Malaya. And the trade is in many hands, really, and, and it's passed from link to link. And there are many players in, in this game with no nobody having overall control. The great land empires of Hindu land empires of India who control the trading ports do not themselves trade themselves. High-class Brahmins had some kind of religious interdict against putting to sea. So they have a harmonious cooperation with the Muslim traders who are settled very often in the ports and um, who pay taxes for the use of um, the port and on the goods that pass through. So it's cooperative in many ways. And uh, of course, the Portuguese have come into rupture this. The Portuguese come with an idea of monopoly trading, of expelling Islam from the ocean, and bringing a high level of polarization, I think, militarization into the sea. There is no armed war fleets in the Indian Ocean. There's local piracy, but nobody has, has, a, has a, a military task force of any significance. So, Da Gama is in India, 
And so how does it go for him and how long does he stay before he turns back? The government's only there a few months and quickly uh, trouble breaks out very quickly because he demands of the ruler of Calicut that uh, he should only trade with uh, Portugal, that he should stop trading with uh, Islam, the Islamic merchants. And also he suffers from a kind of, it's a bit of a misconception again that the Portuguese see the Hindu gods with all their arms and think that they're that these are just sort of deviant Christians who have got it slightly wrong. <laughs> and we will correct their doctrinal fallacies. And it takes a couple of trips before they work out that these people are actually a completely different religion. <laughs> but um, the, one of the consequences of this is that things become very edgy for the uh, Gama. They thought, they, they thought they're going to be um, imprisoned or captured, and they make a kind of breathless escape. And, but this is just the beginning of the ratcheting up of tension which is going to increase voyage by voyage, year by year, with the Portuguese desire to expel Muslim merchants from the ocean and to carry out and control monopoly trading of the spice trade. And this is what the Portuguese are so good at is again and again, you know, they they, they are remorseless in sending expedition after expedition. And I guess the next one is Cabral. Do you want to just say a bit about Cabral and his misadventures? Cabral is the the next expedition sent out the year after Gama returns, and every year for 400 years, the Portuguese are going to send out uh, a fleet to the Indian Ocean. Cabral overcooks the swing into the uh, Atlantic, which I talked about, and accidentally discovers Brazil, (laughs) which he claims for Portugal, the land of the True Cross. And... um, then makes it round to Calicut, and the tension is ratcheted up here. There's massive misunderstandings. Um, uh, some of the Portuguese are killed uh, trying to trade. Cabral bombards Calicut, and we're on the way to, for headlong uh, confrontations with both the you know indigenous Hindu rulers and with their Muslim merchant communities. And I sometimes think this is the real secret weapon that the Portuguese have in their fight, is that they are able to send fleet after fleet after fleet because they can finance them. And nobody in the Muslim world seems to have access to finance in the same way. So a tiny little country like Portugal, if it's financed by the Fugars or whoever, they can keep sending fleets in a way that, uh, in, in a way that the Muslims simply can't match. Yes. Portugal effectively is drawing on the intellectual and financial capital of Europe. And this is a critical moment, I think, when money comes into play. The Fuggers are starting to coin vast amounts of wealth out of silver mines, and they're investing in all kinds of ventures. And really, it is... You could see that the Portuguese, with the one skill, or the two skills, if you like, of navigation and cartography, are, are actually the spearhead of a, of a pan-European project of Europe coming together in a critical period at the end of the 15th, uh, 15th, early 16th century, in which printing plays a part in dissemination of information. And so really, they are, they are drawing on intellectual capital of a continent, really, and as well as their own skills. So you would say it's not just finance, it's also printing that's, that's making a difference in terms of their ability to, to get ahead, so to speak. Yes, I th- we, we see a vast flood of information 
But the Portuguese are uh, incredibly keen to redact information. Every ship that comes back with its uh, charts uh, uh, were confiscated and impounded in the in the India house. But spies come. The Venetians are particularly keen to spy on the Portuguese. Why are the Venetians so keen to spy? Well, the Venetians see that their business model is in trouble because they've been buying their spices through uh, the Mamluks from Alexandria coming up the Red Sea. And suddenly, if the Portuguese can sail to India, load up whole ships with spices, they can massively undercut the middleman because the taxes all along the way of buying through the Islamic world make spices very expensive. So the Venetians actually have a monopoly, do they, on trading with the Islamic world? They did. They were much better at managing the prickly nature of trade with with Egypt, with the Mamluks. Very patient, very skilled diplomats, very self-disciplined. And they alone really win that that contest, uh, the sort of intra-Mediterranean con- contest, with, particularly with the Genoese, the Pisans, and other merchants, just because they're better organized. And in a, that sense, they're the forerunners, I think, of the Dutch, when the Dutch start to trade around the world. So they really did have a, a pretty good hold on the on the spice trade. So after Cabral has had his expedition and it's it's not gone particularly well and there's been a fair number killed, that's the backdrop, I think, is it, to de Gama's second expedition and why he is in such a terrible mood and why he's determined to wreak revenge. Did I get that right? That's right. Gama's come to avenge the massacre of some Portuguese at Calicut the previous year and he followed through with incredible bombardment of uh, of of the coast there, and you know we're on the way to headlong trouble between the Portuguese and any host on the potential host on the on the coast of India, and really the follow up of that is that they Manuel then decides to proceed to try and divide and rule the different city-states on the west coast of India. So the next expedition goes to uh, Cochin, further down the coast, where the sultan has disputes with the, or the samandri has disputes with the, with the um, samandri, the ruler of, of Calicut. And so they start to develop a divide and rule policy to get some kind of leverage and what they're really looking for is a secure base, something they can defend. And the building of forts becomes critical to the geopolitical strategy of the Portuguese. At the same time, the remarkable thing, that I think, are really about the early years of the Portuguese in the Indian Ocean. They don't have Google Earth. They can't look down from space. But they managed to work out, given the information gathering skills, which they developed along the coast of Africa, all the critical pinch points of the sea, which are somewhere on the coast of East Africa, like Mombasa, Aden, Hormuz, Calicut, or Cochin, Malacca. And these are the points which they're going to target and try and capture in a, in a series of quite well-structured campaigns, which develop under a succession of uh, leaders. In 1505, Manuel sends out his first viceroy of India, Francisco de Almeida, and he manages to establish a reasonably good base in Cochin, south of Calicut. And, and we start to see 
the development of of footholds being established along the along the coast. And he was then succeeded, wasn't he, by Albuquerque? Or I say he was succeeded. There seemed to be some sort of tussle between them for power, but then eventually Albuquerque takes over. I didn't quite get that. There's always tussle between uh, a Portuguese noblemen. They're very prickly with their honour and their and their prerogative. I, I've heard King Manuel described by one Portuguese historian as a clot. <laughs> he was a very bad judge of men. He tends to give contradictory levels of authority to different people at the same time, thereby stoking trouble between one commander in the Indian Ocean and the next, and his successor. And there is some tussle between Almeida and Albuquerque. But Albuquerque is an extremely bright guy. And what Manuel failed to realize, and he was a clot, was that both Almeida and Albuquerque, although they had their differences, were extremely intelligent guys, completely incorruptible, not concerned with lining their own pockets, the king's very best servants. And they were both actually treated pretty badly by Manuel. Albuquerque's contribution, really, is to develop this fortress policy, understands that the Portuguese, there are many of them, they're never going to be able to win any land battles. So what they need to do is to create fortified ports with forts that they can defend against any threat from the indigenous population. And he realizes that the strategic genius was to work out that the very best spot on the best west coast of India for the Portuguese was Goa. Goa is effectively an island surrounded by um, rivers on the coast, halfway up, and Albuquerque puts a great deal of energy and a couple of, of quite ghastly attacks in order to capture Goa and to create a secure base which can be defended and which can be fortified, from which the Portuguese can then start to control large areas of the Indian Ocean. And you say these were ghastly attacks. Can you just, can you just say a little bit more about that? Yes. Albuquerque has to have two goes at taking Goa from uh, the indigenous ruler. And in the first one, there's, a, there's quite a massacre and they burn a lot of people alive in a mosque, which which he, he writes back to Manuel to say, Sire, we have done a great deed. So this is a man also who's not above using terror as a weapon of controlling people, but he uses it perhaps in a slightly more strategic way than Vasco da Gama did. So he has a reputation among the Portuguese as well as the people that they meet. Uh, his nickname is The Terrible. And he, he he really tried to frighten people in all sorts of ways. He would, If he turned up on the coast at your little sultanate and the lo local sultan sends out an ambassador with some gifts and Albuquerque will sit, he man with a very long black beard, he'd sit all dressed in black on his deck and without moving, he'd say, the man would bring gifts. Everybody brings gifts. They'd say, I'm afraid I don't accept gifts from people from, with whom I'm probably about to fight. <laughs> so he, he um, but he was a strategic genius and he worked out. And one by one, he takes the key points. He takes Hormuz at the mouth of the Persian Gulf. He takes Malacca on the west coast of Malaya. His one failure is taking Aden. He tries to storm the walls of Aden, but he has to write back to Manuel and say, Sire, unfortunately our ladders were too short, <laughs> which uh, was probably true, but didn't go down very well with Manuel, who wasn't 
wasn't a man who kind of was prepared to suffer um, people, even intelligent people, in cases of failure. So not only did Manuel not suffer fools gladly, he didn't suffer intelligent men gladly either. He certainly didn't, no. And was there not some comedy of errors at Aden where they managed to knock a hole in the wall, but then they have a row about who's going to go through first, and by the time they've settled the argument, the, the, the hole's been blocked up or something like that? There is a case of that actually happening in Morocco, but something rather similar happened on the walls of of Aden, where one man gets up on top in a kamikaze attack, and by the time anybody's else has managed to get up there to help him it's, it's really all over for him and all over for their effort it was it was a critical moment actually the plan was because manuel had messianic visions of crusading visions and his real aim was to recapture jerusalem and his plan was to send albuquerque up into the red sea to go over land to medina uh, capture the body of the prophet muhammad and hold it for ransom, <laughs> uh, and with a bit of help from Prester John. This is a man who, who thought in sort of fairly crazy. He, he believed 1500 is a critical year in Christian history. It was a moment of, you know, 1500 since the years, since the birth of Christ, and there was a, a great deal of messianic, prophetic stuff in the atmosphere, and Manuel was certainly very much prone to this way of thinking that he was going to be Christ's emperor on earth with some help from his hapless conquistadors in the Indian Ocean. And we kind of laugh at this, but it was a time when the most astonishing things were happening, the invasions of the Americas and, I guess, taking all these forts on the Indian coast. I mean, it's hard to know quite what the limits are at that time, so I wonder if we can really blame Manuel completely. It was in the air, this with this way of looking at the world. Um, unfortunately for Manuel, I think there was a... His view of India was that India was a, a launch pad which was going to provide the resources for crusading. I think a great number of the regular Joes who went out on ships weren't terribly interested in the crusading. They were really interested in the stuff. Mm. So very early on, you get a vast amount of, of private trading of... Uh, sort of evasion of Manuel's monopoly. Manuel expected everything to, to come back into his coffers and to provide a few resources to gather them within in the intuition as possible. And so you get massive levels of corruption very early on from people who, you know, just just want to get rich. And that for, for ordinary people was really the main incentive. You know, stuff the body of the Prophet Muhammad, they really weren't interested. They just wanted the stuff. Mm. And Albuquerque, although he's in many ways, you know, a terrifying figure and, and a man of capable of dishing out the most extreme violence. He's also quite realistic, as you say. He's very intelligent, and he works out how to settle his men, doesn't he, amongst the local populations? It's interesting. I mean, there was an initial phase of terror, you could say, in Albuquerque, strategic terror, and he, you know, he would frighten people in all sorts of ways. There was an example of, of an ambassador coming uh, to see him from one of the nearby Indian states. And Albuquerque wants to freak this guy out. So he puts in a breastplate, stands it up against the wall and says, look, I'm going to show the power of our weapons that your breath, breastplate will protect you. And he gets a man to fire a shot at him. And the shot bounces off the breastplate. And he's meant to carry that back 
to the Raja by whom he has been sent to say, well, these Portuguese, they are undefeatable. You know, they've got this fantastic armor. But actually, it was a wax bullet. <laughs> very crafty. <laughs> um, but so Albuquerque's very good at this kind of stuff. But after he's gone through the stage of establishing bases, of managing to play the political game in the arena of the uh, states bordering on Goa, he really tries to establish something that was a little bit more humane. Firstly, he realizes that men who do not have women who come out to India are going to cause trouble. So he encourages a mixed-race marriage policy with local Hindu women. They have to convert to Christianity. It's a slight drawback. <laughs> but he realizes that if, and if he can settle the men in some way, there's going to be trouble. There are going to be rapes, and it's going to be difficult. This is against the complaints of the Catholic Church there. And by the end of his life, he says something, I think, really quite wise, which the Portuguese never, uh, never remembered or played up to often. He said, Portugal is a small country. As long as we treat people decently and rule them with respect, we will be loved. But we are a small country, and poor people tend to get greedy. When we become greedy, we will be hated. One thing I just want to mention was there's a delightful story in your book. Uh, well, there's two stories I noticed that he that Albuquerque sends back to Manuel, a rhinoceros, I think, and he also sends back an elephant. So I don't know what happens to the rhinoceros, but the elephant ends up with the Pope. Yes. Lisbon became a place where exotic animals turned up quite frequently. You could see Manuel being parade, parading through the streets or being riding through the streets with a with a sort of cheetahs and panthers and things following him. But Albuquerque sends, first of all, an elephant to Manuel. And the elephant becomes the animal superstar of the age. <laughs> it was called Hanno after Hannibal. And it's, he, in the end, he sends it in a great show of pomp to the Pope in Rome. It makes, goes all the way to Rome from, I think I'm probably taken on a ship, but I'm transporting elephants by ships is a, a subject of great interest and one that I've never really cracked. <laughs> but I, I'm probably taken by ship to the coast of, of Italy and then paraded into Rome with, with an Indian rider and a, a huge cavalcade of people. And it's enormously impressive. And the Pope becomes enormously fond of this elephant particularly because if you give it a bucket of water, it will squirt water over, over all his cardinals. <laughs> Unfortunately for Hanno the elephant, that they weren't very good on elephant diet, and they decided to um, feed him a laxative of gold. And um, this does for Hanno. And I believe that a couple of hundred years later, when they were doing some kind of renovation or extension of the Vatican compound, they found Hanno's skeleton, actually. He was very famous. People wrote poems about him and Raphael produces a, a picture of him. The follow-up gift was the rhinoceros, but unfortunately the rhinoceros gets drowned just as the ship is, is reaching the coast of Italy and never makes it. And the mystery is that Dürer manages to produce a very famous and quite realistic picture of this rhinoceros without ever having seen it. Somebody sent him a sketch of it. So you can see these extraordinary creatures arriving uh, the ex exotic world arriving, and a lot of it arrives in Lisbon. Uh, and so, you know, this was a place where extraordinary things could be seen. You can the the wealth of, of the Indies, the, the fruits, the parrots, the the animals, the African slaves singing and dancing in the streets. It was a very very rich forum for 
people to understand that there's a world beyond Europe. So you mentioned that they that they captured Malacca, and that's not a straightforward undertaking, is it? Because it's a very long way from India. Malacca was the furthest reach that the, the Portuguese could manage, and taking a Muslim city, which is quite well defended, was difficult. And it's the critical hub, actually, of the Swiss trade. Abacat manage, manages to do it. It's a, it's a huge struggle. And in the process, he starts coming into contact with Javanese pilots uh, and people who sail on towards the Swiss Islands and China. And he acquires some quite valuable navigational maps with which he sets off back to Goa. But he, he is shipwrecked in, in the Straits between Sumatra and Malaya, and just about makes it alive back to Goa. But he unfortunately he's lost the maps, which he really saw about. A lot of people back in Goa were really quite disappointed to see him return, because in his absence, all kinds of forms of corruption had broken, uh, had broken out. But he seemed almost indestructible. This is a man who the shots whizzed over his head. He was wounded in attacks in Calicut. There were attempts to poison him. And eventually, it's the climate, really, which does for uh, Albuquerque. Nobody lives for a long, has a long life coming from Portugal into the Indies. Neither Vasco da Gama, nor Albuquerque, nor Almeida make it back to, to Portugal. They all die in various different ways, either on the journey or, or in India. And he, he dies um, in, in Goa in uh, 1515 as the main architect of the creation of a Portuguese empire in the Indian Ocean. And how long do the Portuguese continue to have this, I wouldn't say monopoly exactly, but to have this terrifically strong position in India? When, when do others come in to try and sort of take what they would say would be their share? The Portuguese manage a monopoly probably for about 50 or 60 years. They, towards the second half of the century, they actually find themselves in conflict with the Ottoman Empire. The Ottomans destroy the Mamluks in 1517, and they start to build fleets in the Indian Ocean. And the Portuguese find themselves in a series of tremendous sieges up and down the coast of India in the, in the, in the Middle Years of the 16th century, which actually they managed to, f to fight off. But little by little, they realize that they are incapable of maintaining a complete monopoly on the, on the spice trade. Traders from Malacca or further on find routes round the other side of Sumatra and outflank them. And there just aren't enough Portuguese vessels, fleets in the Indian Ocean to stop up all the leaks and in time, they're going to just become one more player in the game. Okay. Have we reached the end there, do you think? Kind of feels like that's a good, that's a good, they're just one more player in the game. That's a good ending. Yeah. I can't think, is there anything else we haven't talked about? No. Right. So that's, that's the Portuguese in the Indian Ocean round Africa. That was a fantastic hour, uh, Roger. Thank you so much for taking us through it. I really enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Not at all. Thanks, thanks very much, Russell. Well, that's the end of today's show. I hope you enjoyed listening. And if you did, do please join me for the next episode. And if you have the time, please do recommend me to your friends. And a share on social media and maybe a review on iTunes really helps my guests get the audience they deserve. Goodbye for now.